I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The improved ability to generate and capture data is providing researchers with potential for new insights into diseases, but the growing volume and complexity of the data has made it difficult to translate all of this into actionable information. We spoke to Spiros Musis, founder and president of Systems Imagination, about what the emerging world of big data means for rare disease patients, how it requires new ways of approaching scientific problems and why innovative collaborations are becoming more important than ever to develop new therapies. Spiro, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to talk about big data today, what it is, how it's changing the landscape for finding new and, and better medical treatments, and the challenges it presents. Let's start with the term big data itself, which has become quite popular. What is it? Well, big data really represents uh, data that is large, both in volume, but also complex. Um, it also represents data that has velocity, which means it's uh, streaming quickly and changing at the same time. So it, it's a very broad term that encompasses uh, a variety of things, but basically it has to do with the challenge of either data that is uh, very large in volume or complex in how it's structured um, and requires some next-generation computational approaches. The falling cost and increasing speed of sequencing has helped proliferate the amount of data available to researchers, but that's just one source. We're increasingly learning to harness other streams of data, particularly with the advent of mobile monitoring and, and data gathering electronic medical records, and many other sources. This data, though, may be unstructured and, and conforming to different formats. How much of a challenge is integrating these disparate sources of data? It, it is the challenge. Um, I, I think integrating disparate types of data and coming up with ways of representing all of those complex disparate types of information into a single model uh, is the greatest challenge we're facing today. Um, so let me come back to what you mentioned about genomics. It's true that we have gotten deeper and deeper genomic data. We're now routinely sequencing whole genomes um, where we're looking at billions of measurements from an individual genome. As you mentioned, that is structured data, still very complex data. Most of it, we don't quite understand it. Very difficult to interpret all that genomic data. The thing that is allowing us to now go from taking all of this data from the genome sciences and trying to translate it into something clinical is the integration with the other types of profiling data, um, the, the types of data you've mentioned, the monitoring data, et cetera. One way to think about it is deep genotyping, and then on the other side, we have phenotyping. So what's happened is we've gotten so far advanced in how we're genotyping we're doing extremely deep genotyping. But on the phenotype side, we've, we're measuring not billions, but dozens of, um, of traits. 
and dark clinical phenotypes. What we need to do is move towards deep phenotyping. Uh, deep phenotyping means that we can select um, disparate types of information about a patient. Uh, they could be absolutely monitoring type of information. They could be deep history, their EMR, uh, all sorts of anything that describes the patient. The deep phenotyping data really is enabling for us to interpret the genomic data. But all of that is premised on being able to represent it as a single um, model to be able to compare, for example, uh, something that happens at the phenotypic level with something that happens at the genomic level. And that's, and that's where my interest lies. And do we know what phenotypic data we might want to gather that we're not gathering today? Yeah, okay. That, let me give you some very specific examples. Um, in oncology, for example, um, we are, we have the ability to not just sequence somebody's germline genome, but we can sequence their cancer genome. Uh, their cancer genome gives us a lot of information about the disease state. It tells us which genes are mutated, amplified, overexpressed, deleted, and so forth. Um, when we get a description of the cancer, we might have something like uh, osteosarcoma. Right, for bone cancer. Uh, that's too vague a descriptor. We need more phenotypic information. One source is from pathology. So histopathology, a pathologist can look under a microscope and add additional characterizations of that tumor. Another one is radiologic imaging. Today, we're dependent on humans to look at those pathology images and those uh, radiological images and extract features using their imagination. Um, where we're moving to next is the ability to use machine learning. Uh, algorithms such as deep learning have the ability to autonomously extract features from image data. So instead of collecting two or three classifiers that come from a pathologist or a radiologist's imagination, we would love to extract billions of features uh, autonomously using machine learning. And, and again, deep learning allows us to look at something as uh, as an image, right? So it's not structured data like a genome, but it's all the pixels coming out of an image, a radiological image, and give us the deep phenotyping, the pattern analysis of the deep phenotypes that we never had before. And that's just starting to take place now. It's often said we're very good at generating data, but actionable information is a, another story. Why is it so difficult to capitalize on the data we generate and develop treatments and cures that are safe and effective? Well, there's many reasons. The primary reason, I believe, would be um, understanding. Um, we have machines and databases that can remember or store that data. But interpreting that data, coming up with some mechanistic understanding of how the pieces come together, uh, the modeling of that data is, again, something that's submitted to the human and, and what a human imagination can do. Uh, as a scientist, I can imagine a hypothesis of why a child's tumor may be affected by a particular mutation. That model was born in my imagination, and I could test it using high-performance computing and sophisticated algorithms. Um, I, I think the next generation of computing uh, where we're going with this is the ability for machines to imagine uh, a model, 
and new hypotheses that I would have never imagined. So that, yeah, the concept there is uh, machines that can autonomously generate hypotheses, map those hypotheses against the data, recover those um, those beliefs, those hypotheses that best fit the data, that are justified with reality. And I think that creating systems that can generate the novel knowledge is the way that we're going to crack a lot of these very difficult, complex, rare disorders. Um, right now, um, we're very much dependent on humans to interpret the complexity of genomic information, and we're just scratching the surface. If we want to see that submerged part of the iceberg, if you will, um, that, that ability to find the unknown unknowns, we do have to start moving towards machine learning where we can go beyond looking at, you know, two or three hypotheses or dozens of hypotheses to looking at billions of hypotheses a second. And and I think that's going to transform the way both the, both the way we deliver care, um, being able to use the whole repertoire of data to individualize treatment and deliver more precise care, but also accelerate the discovery of uh, new mechanisms of action and therefore new therapeutics. We've seen great strides in computing with artificial intelligence moving out of science fiction and into reality. Will machines ultimately be able to do what we struggle to do, or do you think human insight, to, to borrow your term, imagination, will still be a critical component? Um, well, the, I, I think when, when people talk about artificial intelligence, everybody gets hung up on creating something that does what a human does. and there's no doubt that there's certain things that a human does, like integrate disparate types of information into a common model, a hypothesis. So, for example, when I'm thinking about um, uh, uh, data from a particular patient, let's say it's a cancer patient, and I'm thinking about how to connect their mutation to what is seen on a radiological image, to the histopathology, to the lifestyle of the patient, are they smoker or not? I have no problem integrating those disparate types of information, uh, and I have no problem coming up with a hypothesis that I can then test. That that ability to um, generate a belief and then test that belief and justify it and create new knowledge is a uniquely human thing. A lot of the other things that humans do uh, in the day-to-day -day life are very complex also, but it's that one element of knowledge managing and generating knowledge that I think we want to copy or learn from. Um, and, and so in, in the sense of biomimicry for AI, um, what we're doing is learning what the fundamental principles are that the brain uses to um, uh, understand and generate new knowledge. Once you understand the general principles by how that information is processed uh, from a belief into a, into knowledge, then you could use those general principles to design machines. So, um, in the same way that we we learn the principles of aerodynamics and use those principles of aerodynamics to design airplanes, right? That's an analogy that Anthony Chang came up with. I love it. It's uh, it, we're not creating birds. Right? We're not, we don't want to fully understand what a bird does. We just care about those few 
uh, principles of aerodynamics, and once we understand those really well, we can build machines that can fly, and they don't necessarily have a lot of the other properties of humans. Similarly, when we're talking about AI, we don't want to fully capture all of the dimensions and richness of a human mind. We just care about those few principles of knowledge representation that allows us to do things that machines can't do today. So, so that's what I'm interested in, not fully um, capturing the imagination and, um, and all of the richness of a human mind, the emotions and all of that other good stuff. It's just what are the basic principles by how the human brain can take um, information, turn it into a belief, test that belief, and then turn that into knowledge. We, we've talked about the increasing complexity of, of these data, but as scientific challenges become increasingly complex, what role do you think collaboration from people of different disciplines and expertise play in, in solving problems? Oh, it's key. I, I think that um, having having the Tower of Babylon where everybody generates uh, data um, independently, without some standards, without some interoperability, um, will just lead to more chaos, right? We need um, people to talk to each other. People who generate the data need to work very closely with people who warehouse the data, and those need to work very closely with people who are analyzing the data. And what we're seeing now is the emergence of team science. We're seeing multidisciplinary groups come together, uh, bringing computer scientists with genome researchers, with drug developers, uh, all coming together, um, learning to speak the same language, um, creating interoperable systems, because ultimately the expertise that, um, to give you an example, you know, we talked about genomics and, and deep phenotyping. Well, there, there is a wide variety of uh, quality, and there are many standards by which that data is generated. Uh, unless those individuals are part of a collaborative team, then they're not going to create that coherent um, that allows data to flow from one end to the other. Um, we've seen, for example, uh, the value in creating networks of hospitals. Um, so Anthony Chang, who I mentioned before, he had the vision to say, let's bring all the pediatric hospitals together, form a single society, so he calls that the International Society for Pediatric Innovation, and, and that, so far, has grown to more than 50 pediatric hospitals. All who are coming together, we're building cloud-based solutions to create very elastic, scalable computer systems. And that ability to leverage the power of the cloud created interoperability with hospitals collaborating. Uh, in our, so when you have a research project, for example, and you want to share data across the, the community, uh, you don't have to worry about you know, um, what EMR somebody's on or um, um, what protocol they're using. So you have a single federated network that you just plug and play that has all the standards, that has all of these things. So collaboration is absolutely key to success in uh, a lot of talking about here. One of the things that frustrates rare disease patients is that they're often racing against the clock. Most are without meaningful therapeutic options and they can be facing a degenerative and, and deadly disease. Drug development by its very nature is slow. 
Does it have to be this way? What, what can be done to accelerate the translation of bonding in the labs to bring new drugs to market? The answer is no, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and there have been some terrific movements. Um, so the FDA has um, been very good about recognizing the unmet need for and the challenges of uh, uh, rare conditions um, and has stepped up and provided a lot of channels for uh, drug developers to develop things and incentives uh, to accelerate the development of these drugs. Most of the delays happen at the regulatory level, right? It's, research can move at the speed of thought, but the um, proving that a particular drug is both safe and effective is the rate-limiting step. And if we can decrease the standard by which that proof, if we could say, let's get something that is safe enough and effective enough and, and it just accelerate that process, um, that is certainly something that's happening already. Uh, biotech companies are responding to some of these incentives that are out there. Uh, the FDA it has been granted accelerated approval. Um, but we could do more. I, I think that what I would like to see is more collaboration. I think with rare disorders, the biggest challenge is clinical development. Clinical trials are very hard when you only have a handful of patients. This is why this society that I just mentioned, the International Society for Pediatric Innovation, the iSpy network has 50 hospitals. Uh, no hospital is going to have enough patients independently, and it takes a long time to build a, uh, a, a consortia uh, of hospitals to run a particular study. But if that network exists already, you can just tap into it for clinical development. If you have a single source where you can search for patients that have a particular phenotype or genotype, that I think is also going to accelerate uh, drug development. You've had a lot of experience working with uh, collaborations with industry in your previous position at TGen, the Nonprofit Translational Genomics Research Institute. You you were leading that effort. What's the key to making those relationships successful? Um, well, there's a, there's a lot of um, important characteristics. I think you have to incentivize and align um, everybody's incentives. If if you're uh, an academic uh, institution and your mission is to disseminate knowledge and and then you have collaboration with the biotech whose mission is to increase shareholders value and then you have researchers who are interested in discovering things you have to understand everybody uh, what everybody is looking for in terms of attracting them to that project and make sure those uh, needs are all aligned I think I've seen a lot of projects where uh, for example, industry has missed the point. They, they forgot that academic researchers are interested in disseminating knowledge. They forgot that, um, you know, other parties may not care about financial value in the product they're generating. And, and I think when you miss, when you have a collaborative, you're trying to develop a, a network and, and you don't fully align everybody's interests, uh, that things fall apart. So to the degree that we can do that, and just understand and say, hey, uh, not everybody's altruistic, not everybody cares about knowledge, not everybody cares about financial benefits, but if we can align all of those things effectively, we can accomplish a lot. Um, so hurting the cat and trying to align interests has been uh, where I've focused my time most in, in 
creating these types of collaborative teams, and it's paid off. Uh, and, and I've seen a lot of situations where if you don't align everybody's interests, if, if somebody's not aligned, then then they can really drag a project um, tremendously. You talk about the importance of creating a culture of innovation. What do you mean by that, and, and how do you create a culture of innovation? Well, I think that um, if, if you think about the culture of innovation within an organization, there's going to be people who are always the first to change, right? And creating a culture of innovation simply means um, creating an environment that makes it okay to uh, deal with the challenges of change. Um, most people in large organizations are adverse to change because change brings risk, right? Um, the what a lot of institutions and people within organizations and um, don't understand is that there's a great risk of not innovating, right? The the cost of falling behind, not innovating and not um, changing, is just as great. And the, the example I always like to use is the you know blockbuster video, right? Um, here's a very large organization. Um, you know, generating terrific revenues, uh, why would they change, right? Uh, well, they didn't have the foresight to see that the market's changing, the foresight is changing, and, and if you stick to your business model, the status quo, that's a risk too. And it, and it was a very big risk, and they lost um, that bet that changing is better than not, not changing is better than changing. So I think that when you look at a hospital, when you look at a research institution, or you look at a pharmaceutical company, and they're stuck in their ways, the risk of not changing is not fully understood. So a culture of innovation, people value change. People see the importance of change for survival. Uh, changing business models, exploring new ideas, um, is actually the safer thing to do. Uh, so people who would normally be adverse to change, once they see the value of change and they see that the risks are not what they would perceive, then then you've created a culture of innovation and uh, where people are willing to explore new ideas and test new game-changing business models. Spiro Musis, founder and president of Systems Imagination. Spiro, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Spiro Moose's work, join Global Genes for its annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit in Huntington Beach, California, starting September 22nd. For more information, go to globalgenes.org and select Patient Advocacy Summit under the Events tab. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.